the more you can bring your sex out of the shadows and your sexuality into your body and into the rest of your world, then the easier it is to have it feel integrated, to have yourself feel whole, and to have your sexual connections and your emotional bonds with other people feel really rich and cohesive. Welcome to It's Not Human Sexuality, the show that goes beyond sexuality to reproductive health. Understanding the foundations of reproductive health allows you and the ones you love to make better decisions about your health, mind, and relationships. This podcast is co-hosted by Dr. Betsy Cairo, or Dr. B, and Mandy Johnson. Dr. B has her doctorate in human reproduction and is a board-certified reproductive biologist. She is also a certified sexuality educator with supervisory standing and over 20 years experience teaching at the graduate and undergraduate level. She is the owner of the only commercial cryobank in Colorado and is the executive director of the nonprofit Look Both Ways. Her nonprofit specializes in reproductive health education. Mandy Johnson is a high school family and consumer science teacher with more than 15 years experience and a master's degree in education. She is also a certified sexuality educator and is treasurer on the board of Look Both Ways. The two have been friends for many years and are passionate about changing the way we educate our youth about their reproductive health. Welcome to the latest episode of It's Not Human Sexuality. I'm Mandy Johnson. And I'm Dr. Betsy Cairo, or Dr. B. And with us today is Indigo Stray Conger. So you can read all the books and be really excited to have an enlightened, open relationship. And that's not going to change the fact that when your partner is out on a date, you suddenly are having a panic attack. Indigo is a sex and relationship therapist based in Colorado. She trained in the heart of San Francisco, the land of inclusiveness and sexual exploration. She has specialized in working with kink and non-monogamy for 13 years and enjoys helping partners find their deepest ways to connect. Consensual non-monogamy, or now the term that's a little more popular, ethical non-monogamy, is a spectrum. Indigo has been quoted as a sexpert in numerous national publications, including Healthline, Insider, Mind Body Green, Let's Get Kinky and the New York Times. She hopes to see the day when sexual desire is no longer tinged with shame for anyone, of course, unless that's your kink. <laughs> Welcome, Indigo. It's so good to have you here. I'm really excited to learn from you tonight and, and hear about your practice. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Mandy. So a little bit of background. I met Indigo through an organization uh, that she and Mandy and I are both members of, um, the American Association of Educators, Therapists, and Counselors. And you are certified as a sex therapist, and you are a licensed marriage and family therapist. Is that correct? Yes, that's me. Okay. <laughs> and can you briefly, and I, and because I know not everybody knows the distinction, um, but briefly explain the difference between a therapist and a counselor. I don't even think I know exactly what a counselor counts as under the ASECT guidelines. Um, so a therapist, I can explain very well, is a therapist is somebody who works with couples or individuals on mental health issues or in the case of couples, relational issues. Um, they typically have a master's level of education, which can be between two and four years, and then two to 3,000 hours of uh, additional certification hours in, in treating clients before they're fully licensed. Um, and in terms of being an ASECT, 
intersect therapist, then you have additional hours that are specifically in the areas of sexuality. And it's an additional two years or so of education on top of that. I'd love to hear from you, Betsy. Maybe you know under ASECT what counts as a counselor, because sometimes those are used as synonymous terms in the industry. <laughs> right. And they're not synonymous. And I don't, I don't know exactly the distinctions. I do know that therapists is probably definitely what you said, probably higher level of education, a lot more rigor, I think, in the certification process. A lot of them stem from uh, marriage and family counseling background. But again, of course, there's all realms of it. But I think it's important with respect to the patient interaction, like you said, the, the therapy part of it, as far as giving them tools to work with, is possibly the distinction. And I think under ASECT, it may also be counseling that's specifically around sexuality. So I think you would get a counseling certification if you're going to work at Planned Parenthood, which is not therapy. Um, I believe the people, but, but I'm also not sure then what the distinguishes between educators and counselors, because also I know educators can work in a similar forum. So yeah, well, Mandy and I really understand the difference between educators <laughs> yeah. and counselors <laughs> and it's distinct, but that's a conversation for a different time. We'll have to get a counselor I, I was on looking here forward to, to Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, was, okay. I was hoping to learn what, what the difference. <laughs> well, I think it's hard because the lines are muddy, but mm-hmm. I remember one time we were in a meeting and we said something like, I said, how many of you consider yourself educators? Because we're typically the only educators mm-hmm. in the room, yeah. right? And so everybody said, well, I educate my patients, but I'm not an educator in the sense mm-hmm. of academia. And I think that's where... It's the difference between like Planned Parenthood and what what Mm -hmm. we do. Anyway, but the important thing to know is that she rocks and she has a lot of experience (laughs) and a lot of education. I love people who rock. (laughs) Yes, definitely. (laughs) And so today we're going to be talking about BDSM and kink. And just right out the gate, let's explain what BDSM is and what kink is and really what are the distinctions between the two or are they just really the same? Sure. So BDSM is four letters, but it's really six all squeezed into one. So the first BD is bondage and discipline. And so bondage can be anything that's used to physically restrain. It can be handcuffs, shackles, spreaders, shibari, rope bondage. Uh, It can be your own hands, anything that is bonding a person. And then discipline is really the counterpart to that where it's more the psychological uh, bonding, or it can be referring to anything that is physical discipline which can be paddles, whips, floggers, using your hands to spank, that kind of thing. And then the second D, so DS now we have, is dominance and submission. And those middle letters are really referring more to the power dynamics, the power play. And some people identify really strongly with always being a dominant or a submissive or a switch, someone who switches between the two. But even if someone doesn't identify really strongly with playing a particular role in that power play and power exchange, uh, it's almost always part of BDSM and kink that there's some power exchange happening with one person who is taking the reins and in power and one person who is submitting, although oftentimes the person who is submissive or submitting actually has a lot of the power and dictates a lot of the scene. And then the last two letters are the second S and the M, sadism and masochism. And that's referring to people who enjoy experiencing pain or intense sensation and people who enjoy inflicting pain or intense sensation. And those may go along with dominance and submission, but not always. And so sometimes people really enjoy the psychological play. Sometimes people enjoy the physical play. Sometimes they enjoy both. 
So that's a very quick overview of the kind of activities and dynamics that might go into BDSM. Uh, and then kink is often used synonymously with BDSM. And it's another one of those areas where they're synonymous but not synonymous and they often get used interchangeably. One of the ways that I think of kink as being the most interesting way to frame it is that it is an empowering phrase. So kink is kind of any kind of sexual play that's outside the normative vanilla play. It's something that sets you outside of that. So in a similar way as embracing any term that can sometimes be used pejoratively, uh, it, it's reclaiming the power of that. In a similar way as reclaiming the power of the word cunt, for example, or queer, um, that those are typically pejorative terms in the past, but it's embracing those things as enjoying being in the different and immersing in that and finding a community of like-minded individuals. Yeah, nice those explanation. Are, <laughs> yes. And you, and you hit something that to me is, I wouldn't call it a trigger, but I, something my ears always pick up and that's vanilla play. Can you elaborate on that? Because some people assume vanilla is boring. Yes, and I think often it's used as a pejorative term as vanilla is missionary style sex. There's not a lot of power exchange. There's not a lot of communication. It's you're having sex for orgasm and not for much else. Um, you may be having sex even for reproductive reasons and not even particularly focused on pleasure, but that's not that's not actually the case, right? That's what it means for, in a more pejorative term. And oftentimes I will hear people apply that to themselves. Like they're not cool enough to be kinky or they're not really BDSM because they're not into really heavy scenes. So they kind of say, oh yeah, I'm really just kind of a vanilla sex person, even though uh, I like handcuffs or I like spanking. I'm really just vanilla though. So it's almost used as labeling yourself as more boring when um, it's, it's too bad that that gets used because really kinky and vanilla don't have to be so opposite. And vanilla is the most beloved flavor on the planet, actually, and has a lot of nuances. So it's unfortunate <laughs> well, a lot it's you been paired with that. <laughs> well, it's a pretty good foundation to add a lot of toppings, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yes. My favorite ice cream, I'm just going to say. Great, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but to I, add a lot of toppings, I like that. So you can start with a vanilla base and add yeah, some kink and, and you don't have to call you yourself want. kinky, but but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like the, you know, it's a little sprinkles. vanilla with sprinkles or <laughs> hot fudge sundae or, like you know, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. chocolate dip vanilla cone. Like. I think though, again, where the idea of having vanilla be a pejorative is almost a reclaiming of something that has been the only acceptable kind of sex, right? So for people in the past who have experienced shame as being kinky individuals, engaging in BDSM, um, saying, vanilla as the pejorative allows them to feel empowered like we're in the interesting side of things and we're in the good side of things where there's uh, more yumminess in sex, more intentionality around sex. Uh, so even though now we can say, well, wait a minute, we don't have to be pejorative to vanilla people or people who like um, sex that's not particularly kinky. It started as a way to embrace it's not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with you that you like spanking in the bedroom. Right. And I think that it's, it's just sort of this dynamic. It is a power exchange for sure, it, it, to use that term. But the um, interesting thing for me about that is that whenever there is something that feels in the minority, can use something to put the other portion down to elevate themselves, right? And that's kind of what you were saying. But I think what was important for me, especially when I was teaching this at the college level, is that I wanted to make sure that everybody understood that if you like this type of sex and it's good for you and it's with consent and you dig it and it's vanilla, according to everybody else, 
they cares? can just bugger off yeah, because it's cares? really nobody's business. And I and I want to make sure that our listeners understand is that what, as we get deeper into this topic, you don't you're you don't have to engage in all the Kama Sutra positions to have great sex. Because I love that you, know. you just said that, Betsy, because I get media queries all the time. And I had to tell my publicist to stop sending me media queries about sex positions because I'm tired of mainstream media constantly having these articles about yeah. sex positions. Like, what are the sex positions to have? Yeah. And the last one I got that really threw me over the edge was, what are the sex positions that can help you if you have low self-esteem in sex? And I wrote back to my publicist and I said, an article like this is exactly why people have low self-esteem about sex because they think everyone else out there is doing the whole Kama Sutra and that right. there's something wrong with them because they're having missionary style sex and liking it. <laughs> it's really interesting because everything evolves. You know, Kama Sutra was the thing and then uh, kink BDSM is now this thing. is coming up in more uh, vernacular almost, right? So it's, it's not really, oh, kink or oh, you know. But I think that there, you know, you're as as a therapist and somebody who delves into this. What do you think brings people to kink or BDSM in a couple situation, or even to go do kink play with a group of people that maybe you don't know? Like you're visiting in a town, and you might go do, you might find a a, a place to play. So, what draws people in for that? What do you think it is? I really think that's a such a broad question. I mean, it's almost like asking, like, what makes people like sex in general? Because kink and well, BDSM true. are such a broad swath. And sure, maybe for some people, there's a very specific reason why they have their kink and they have some memories from their life where they can pinpoint why that became part of their erotic blueprint. But for most people, I think it's about exploration. It's about connection. It's about what turns them on. Um, and in terms of why might people go to a club or a dungeon where they're exploring these things in a more exhibitionistic way? I would say that the majority of kink doesn't happen in that context. And if it does, fantastic. Um, but that's that's where we hear about it or know about it the most because it's more visible, because people want it to be visible. But a lot of times kink and BDSM are happening very privately in the bedroom and it has nothing to do with doing a more public scene. So are there parameters of what we call that type of play, that type of sexual interaction? Is there an umbrella term that all of these things fall under kink? Because we also have fetishes too. We have furries and we have mm -hmm. other things like that. Does that fall under kink? Does that fall under the umbrella of kink or BDSM? Sure. I think there's a lot of crossover in that Venn diagram of the terminology. And um, like you said, a lot of times in the past, fetish has been used negatively to pathologize mm -hmm. someone in terms of paraphilias. I would say just from a vernacular level, the distinguishing difference is that a fetish whatever the fetish object is must be present for someone to get turned on or enjoy sex. Whereas that's not necessarily the case with kink or BDSM activities. Um, someone might enjoy occasional exhibitionism and scenes with other people present. They might enjoy occasional flogging, but they may be able to get off just fine in other contexts as well. So in that sense, fetish can be a little bit more of a narrow definition. Okay. And in that regard too, Let's say we're talking about a dominant submissive relationship. Okay. Is it possible for that relationship to present in that manner all the time 
regardless of whether or not they're in they're having sex. Absolutely. So that would be called a 24-7 or TPE, total power exchange kind of relationship. Um, And even if it's a relationship that's not 24-7, usually there's some gradient between negotiating a scene with a person that you only see one time and they are playing the role of dominant and you're playing the role of submission. And when the scene's done, you go your separate ways and that's not your relation to them anymore. Um, So that's one end of the spectrum. And the other end is a person who you are always submissive to or always the dominant for in all aspects of life. And there's a lot of area in between those two, right? Where um, a couple might decide that it really nourishes them, not just sexually, but in terms of relational safety, in terms of emotional connection, to have breakfasts and their morning routine dictated by their dominant. But then they go to work and they're in a totally different role and they don't think about that relationship in that way throughout the day. Um, And then they come home and there may be some ritualistic aspect to coming home and being with their partner where they're entering back into that space of dominance and submission. Um, And so that's kind of in the middle of that spectrum there, right? Where it's not just Mm -hmm. when you're having sex or you're aroused, uh, but it's not necessarily all of the time. Right. Okay. Right. Because maybe you you have another, you have a professional life as well. So let's say you have somebody who is in the realm of dominance and submission, but one of you is a switch and one of you isn't. Can this lead to the the, uh, dynamics of the relationship becoming unbalanced or stressed? Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes it can become tiring for someone to always play the dominant role, for example, if their one other partner is always in the submissive role and vice versa. My main specialty is working with consensual non-monogamy. So most of the kink and BDSM that I'm working with, there's also non-monogamy present. And I would say that in general, there's a lot of crossover in those communities, uh, but I may also be seeing a particular leaning towards that because that's what I see in my office is consensual non-monogamy. And so in that case, it really reduces the kind of friction that you're talking about because someone who's a switch gets their needs met in a different relationship or they get their needs met not in a relationship, but when they go and play at the rack room or somewhere else, and then they can feel like that bucket gets filled and they're able to show up fully as the dominant or submissive that their primary or anchor partner needs them to be. Okay. So you opened up a whole new avenue for us, which I was, I was really glad we were going to get to, which is consensual non-monogamy. You know, some people think that this is polyamory, but it's it's bigger than that, isn't it? It's different than that. The consensual non-monogamy is what we want to hear you explain. Sure. So consensual non-monogamy, or now the term that's a little more popular, ethical non-monogamy, is a spectrum. So it's everything from people who have sexual play, but they have really strong boundaries around having any emotional connection to other people, to polyamory, where it's non-hierarchical polyamory, Uh, you have multiple partners in many different configurations perhaps that uh, you have egalitarian relationships with and everything in between. Okay. And Go ahead. I was going to say in terms of kink, often I see this come up that um, very frequently two partners, one person will identify as really strongly kinky and one person doesn't. And so they may have a pretty boundaried relationship that exists to fulfill that kinky area of their lifestyle and not feel like it's lacking then with their anchor partner or their nesting partner that they spend most of their emotional, uh, relational energy connecting to. 
What do you see as one of the biggest downfalls in, or I don't even know if the word is downfall, but maybe stumbling area for couples because you know people change things change you might go into as as we all know if we've been in long long-term relationships you start in going in with some pattern or you know whatever and you're together and things evolve and they sort of maybe just evolve together and sometimes when they don't people separate and and don't stay in a partnership but if you started together like if you go in eyes wide open with this person and you know that they're into kink and you're slightly into it and but you're not into the consensual non-monogamy or the ethical non-monogamy then somebody gets hurt here or could is this is this one of the things that you're helping your 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 clients through your patients through is this understanding of finding balance and not one person feeling threatened or abandoned or sad Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times I will have couples who come to me who have been in a monogamous relationship, either through agreement or from default, because they didn't know that anything else existed when they got married in the Catholic Church 20 years ago or whatever their (laughs) experience might be. Um, And so now they're exploring what it looks like to open up. And oftentimes there's one person who's a heck of a lot more interested in that for various reasons than another person. And that might be because they have a kink that's not getting fulfilled, um, or it might be that they just are feeling like their relationship isn't as sexually interesting or robust anymore in the sexual arena or the emotional arena. There's lots of reasons why people choose to open up their relationship. Um, And like I said, there's often one person who's a little less enthusiastic about that. And it's really important that it's fully consensual if people are going to enter into that. So sometimes the person who's less interested will agree to it because it's better than being left or it's better than getting a divorce. Um, And that's not a great reason to open up the relationship because there's going to be a whole lot of emotions and pitfalls that come along with that. And so even if you weren't the driver for this, there has to be a full buy-in to really wanting to do this for you. Um, One of the interesting things I will say is that quite often there's a person who's kind of following, they're not as interested in opening the relationship uh, and They're dealing with a lot of jealousy as their partner starts dating or having uh, kink scenes or whatever it might be. And then one day they find someone for a sexual relationship or an emotional relationship. And quite often the person who is the driver for the consensual non-monogamy experiences way more emotions and way more jealousy. And they thought they were going to be so enlightened and they were the one who was kind of trying to be patient with their partner's jealousy. And now suddenly they're the ones who just get totally thrown on a nervous system level and are experiencing uh, a deep fragility, essentially, um, a panic mode in the body. So that's a lot of what I'm working with in various stages for couples and other relationships. Feels okay for me, but not for you. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> if I were, if, if all of a sudden I'm driving and you're no longer a passenger and you're in your own car, uh, you're starting to look at that, right? And yeah. so I think that to me is not surprising at all um, because I don't know. There might be d- different personalities that come into play on that. One of it being a control issue or a self-esteem issue, maybe for both sides. I don't know. Um, so I, there's I, a lot of issues. Yeah. And I'm really glad you brought up this word jealousy because um, a lot of times when I was lecturing and I would talk about polyamory or and swinging, of course, is different too as well, but some terms out there. And um, students would be like, well, I couldn't do that. I would, I would get jealous and I'd say, oh, 
it doesn't, polyamorous don't not get jealous. Mm -hmm. They just have certain foundational structures that they follow and they deal with it or they don't or they figure it out or whatever, but they go in eyes wide open. This is not, you know, sprung on a lot of people, although it can be. I'm sure you see a lot of that. But I think people don't understand that jealousy still exists even with consent. Absolutely. And a lot of times what's surprising for people is that your body is very connected to your emotions. Your nervous system is very connected to your emotions. So you can read all the books and be really excited to have an enlightened, open relationship. And that's not going to change the fact that when your partner is out on a date, you suddenly are having a panic attack. You can't just wish that away because you have really great logical thinking about why it's a great thing that your partner's out on a date right now. Um, and so a lot of what I'm, I'm doing with people is allowing them to accept that jealousy is there and to give them neurophysiological ways to work through that jealousy, both with themselves in terms of, of emotional regulation and also with their partner or partners in terms of emotional regulation. And often if we can accept this is happening to me and let the emotions move through, it's not so terrible, but it's when we feel like, oh, I shouldn't be jealous. I'm above jealousy or polyamorous people shouldn't be jealous, that's when we run into problems. Because then it feels like, oh my God, I'm jealous. What does that mean? I guess I'm not really polyamorous. I guess I'm not really strong enough to do this. And then you start to go down that road of anxiety. Yes, perfect explanation. Because I think, um, how could you not? I mean, I, I think on any level, I think jealousy is a pretty common feeling for a lot of people. And we don't, we aren't just jealous of our partner or other people's, we're jealous of people's cars and yeah, houses and I mean, jobs. I, I, and I think it, it's, it sounds a lot like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking high school girls. I work in high, I teach high school. So that's my world, right? But right. like when you have a group of like five or six girls who are all quote unquote best friends, yeah. um, they, same thing, they go into eyes wide open. They all know they're best friends with each other, but that doesn't mean they don't get jealous when two of them hang out and their other four aren't included or, yeah. you know, one gets left. I mean, yeah. it's the it's the same kind of idea that the group dynamics you know what's going on mm -hmm. and you know that it's going to happen, but that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt or make you feel jealous when when you see it happening. You know, I mean. And Betsy, you brought up the term, the word control. And I think that's a big part of it is as humans, we all like to have control and we can feel at least like we have much more control when you're in a monogamous relationship of any kind. As soon as you are opening that up to another human being, you can have rules and contracts and talk ahead of time and all that stuff. But ultimately you don't control what's happening. You don't control what's going on when your partner is with someone else. And that can really shake the foundations of how secure we're feeling in a relationship. I had a, a business partner once tell me we were having a discussion and he said, oh, well, that's Betsy. She just always, you know, wants it her way. And I looked at him and I said, of course, I want it my way and you want it your way and they want it their way. Everybody wants it their way. Who doesn't? Yeah. Who doesn't want it their way? I mean, you know, you can classify See, that as selfish. Some people are better at getting it than others. <laughs> <laughs> True that. True that. Well, maybe that's, I perfected that. Maybe that's it. I don't know. But the point is, is that I think... Um, the con yeah, control is issue. And, and I want to go back to this other word that you uh, kind of ran through us, and that's consent. And that was another thing that we always teach our, our, our youth. And I always taught our college kids is consent matters, consent matters, consent matters, consent matters. And for me, 
consent for the definition of consent is a conversation that I have with me and my brain <laughs> and what I want, what it, I'm in charge of me. And I have to decide what I'm going to say yes and no to, right? That's, that's consent. Yeah. So consent obviously is first and foremost when you're contracting for any kind of relational pieces. And when we're talking about BDSM kink, it's really important. Um, where it gets tricky is that there's the consent that you give beforehand and there's the consent that you give in the moment. And if there's any aspect of consensual non-consent in your play, which there often is when there's dominance and submission or there is pain play, um, then it's really important that you have a way to communicate both verbally and non-verbally uh, in the moment about where your consent is really at and that you and your play partner or your partner know each other well enough to really understand those cues. And part of the risk that's there is that those cues might get missed or you might push yourself past those edges because you're in subspace or you were really great and then suddenly you're not and that didn't get communicated really quickly. So like you said, Betsy, knowing yourself, being able to really be mindful and track for yourself, am I consenting in this moment? Do I really want this? Am I enjoying this? Am I able to stay embodied and in touch with myself is an important tool in being able to then be able to communicate that to your partner or partners. Oh yeah, that's great. Which brings me to the basal level of word play, such as safe words. Is that still used? Are safe words still established or safe or gestures? Uh, because sometimes if you are gagged, you can't speak. So uh, do we have, is that, am I getting that right? Or is that yeah. still mm -hmm. exist? Yeah, or? safe words and gestures still absolutely exist. Um, or oftentimes we're using more of a stoplight system of like red, yellow, or green for where you're at. But the reality is that if your only options are safe word, which is pulling the ripcord, we're done with this, or keep going, that doesn't leave a lot of space in between. So I'm really wanting people to develop a communication with their partner or partners that fleshes out that yellow zone, fleshes out that yes, but, or slow down or um, shift over here kind of feeling. So, um, so again, for some people that can remain verbal through the scene. Um, and for other people, whether they're gagged or not, the verbal is really hard to access when they're in that space with each other. And so being able to read each other's micro cues, being able to understand for themselves where they're at and not go so deeply into subspace or top space that they're not able to make contact with that so that they can express those nuanced middle zones, not just the safe word ripcord expression. And in that concept, we're talking, um, are we talking more about uh, someone who might be in the submissive position uh, and is receiving uh, rather than, than in the dominant position with, which when they're performing or giving? Is that, are you talking about that? Because in my mind, dominance they may have limits too of how far they want to take something and they're not that it crosses their safe boundary of I don't want to maybe inflict that much pain or take you to that level. I, they're not comfortable with it. But I think a lot of people might just think of it as the submissive. Yeah, usually that's who is getting talked about the most. And it's also who's getting talked about the most in terms of subspace, which is a phrase I used earlier. And so if you're not familiar, subspace is the place you enter into when your neurotransmitters really wash over you and you drop deeply into your body, but in some ways also out of your body in terms of you're not in your executive functioning anymore. Um, and so it's known that when you're in that subspace, you are not 
probably going to be able to say some complex sentence like, uh, please move a little bit to the left or squeeze a little <laughs> bit less hard, right? You're, you've got to have some other way of speaking. But what's less well known, and oftentimes people who've been in the BDSM community for a long time don't know this, that top space is equally relevant and that um, top space is where a dominant or somebody who is, um, you know, the person who is in charge of the scene and the play also goes into a place where they are not 100% cognizant in their executive function for where they're at. So they can go too far for themselves or the other person without it being something that they were intending on a logical level to do. And they can also have top drop afterwards, just like a sub can have sub drop. And that means that feeling of being drained after a scene is over, after heavy play is over. And they may need some top care, just like someone might need bottom care in terms of what's going to get you back to feeling grounded, present in your body, nourished, getting those electrolytes, getting that emotional security and connection. Um, and so some of the education I often do with partners is when I see that someone hasn't known that they're having top drop and hasn't known that they too need aftercare, hasn't known that they're going past their edge with their partner in inflicting more pain than they want to inflict. Um, and so once that's highlighted that that can happen for them too, it can be really empowering that both people or all people in a scene, it's really important that they're able to communicate where they're at and to understand where they're at. That's really good information. Yeah. I think because it, it, it's a, it's a, a couple dynamic or a group dynamic that has to be examined as a whole and not just somebody, you know, in, in one position, which leads me to my next thought and, and clarification for our listeners with respect to sex. This is considered sex play in a lot of ways. So sometimes in the traditional sense of the word sex, sex doesn't happen. So how is this erotic so oftentimes BDSM, there's no penetrative sex and oftentimes there's no orgasm or even genital play in the scene or in the play that people are engaged in. Oftentimes then that feeling that you get from it is something that then infuses your sex with that partner or partners later or infuses your own masturbation play with yourself. Um, but in the moment, there's not that movement towards goal-oriented orgasm or what we might think of as traditional sex. Um, so, so much of what is our erotic blueprint or our erotic edge doesn't necessarily have to do with what is the sensation that is going to bring you to arousal or orgasm. Um, there's the whole feeling. There's the whole fantasy that happens in our minds. There's the way that we envision and embody ourselves that allows us to get to a place where we feel sexual and sexually connected. Um, and so when you're engaging in BDSM play of any kind, you're essentially setting the stage for that. You're creating a template for that. You're, you're, building a toolbox so that then when you do want to explore orgasm with your partner or yourself, that's there as part of your repertoire in your mind and in your body. That's really interesting. Are there studies around this being euphoric because there is kind of similar to a runner's high, you know, where you, you get that feeling of, well, euphoria essentially, uh, and which leads to a sense of satisfaction and calm yeah, it definitely can be. So 
just to give a concrete example for people who are listening and I'm talking in kind of broader terms, to give a concrete example, someone who likes being flogged, um, they might have a really heavy scene where their partner is flogging them. Um, if they're able to really get into that, that, that subspace and those endorphins are going, they may be able to take a lot more intense flogging than they would if someone just came up to them in the middle of their day and hit them with that level of force. If, if that happened and they were in the middle of their, their life, their work day, they would be like, ow, that feels terrible. <laughs> but um, when their partner is slowly getting them to that place, there's the context, there's the power exchange, then you're really dropping into a zone where you're able able to experience so much more sensation. And that sensation in turn is releasing those endorphins to give you, yes, something similar to a runner's high. And then later on, when you are um, having other sexual interactions with that partner or partners, or you're on your own, you can think back to how empowered you felt receiving that level of flogging. Um, and then that may be what gives you an orgasm. Um, don't get me wrong, some people can have an orgasm while they're being flogged too, but I'm just using that as an example of how the endorphins build, how they get released, and then how you can access that feeling later. And that might be where you feel the orgasm be something that's available to you. Okay, so, and, and you were using the term flogged, so uh, that's to um, whip somebody or to uh, stroke them with whatever object, caning can be one. Uh, they're different, a whip, something like that, which can leave marks. Yeah, all that falls under impact play is what it's called, whatever instrument you're using. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So that could leave marks. So let's say um, you got done with a session, um, you liked, uh, it was a biting session or something that left marks or you had piercings, you know, uh, like a safety pin through the breast or the buttocks or something like that that's going to leave uh, marks or bruises, and you have to go to the doctor for something, right? And I think that there's a lot of, um, there can be concern about this because you want your healthcare provider to know that you're not being abused. This is, but then you don't want them to think that you think they are crazy or that, you know what I mean? So can you, can you explain that to our listeners of what dynamic that people who partake in this type of play might emotionally have to uh, reconcile uh, when they're maybe being seen medically? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of shame and stigma, stigma attached to uh, BDSM and being in the world of kink. And not just with medical providers, but, um, you know, interacting with a friend who doesn't know that you're kinky or a family member that's concerned that they see a bruise or a mark on you. Um, and so that's where having a community of people that are like-minded individuals can be really helpful in terms of cultivating a coherent narrative around yourself that doesn't get shaken when you're faced with somebody who's a doctor, for example, that's in a, a position of power with you. They're a medical provider, so they're in a one-up position. And they may not be trying to shame you. They're, they're concerned about you. Um, but it's very easy to slip into a place where suddenly you start to have self-doubt and shame when a doctor or a family member, whoever it is, says, 
oh my gosh, that's not okay that you have those marks on you. Whatever you're saying, that's not all right to have that mark. That's that's bad. That's abusive. Um, and so when you have a community of people who understand where you're coming from and you have a coherent narrative around why you seek that kind of sensation and why you know exactly where your boundaries are, that can be empowering so that you've practiced that narrative. And I'm not when I say narrative, I'm not just talking about the words that come out of your mouth, but your sense of self in that so that when you talk to a medical provider, you're very confident in saying like, I really appreciate your concern. I understand that it's concerning that you're seeing some marks on my body. The sexual play I'm engaged in is 100% consensual and I'm feeling okay about that. Yeah, it's a slippery slope of of this dance that healthcare providers have to make sure that they're covering all the bases without shaming, making sure that the person is telling the truth because sometimes somebody who is in an abusive relationship will not tell the truth because of their fear or their shame. So that could be difficult. I'm I'm guessing, I'm going to just go out on a limb here, but I'm guessing they don't, physicians in training don't get a lot of this. <laughs> yeah, I don't think most of them do unless they live in San Francisco, perhaps, or somewhere where that's a little bit more prevalent and there's more awareness around it. But one thing to keep in mind if you are the person who's going to your medical provider and you're feeling some shame and concern about it is uh, no matter what your medical provider says, it's probably coming from a good place. And the reality is that if you're an adult, they cannot report you or turn you in somewhere. Um, they are expressing concern and they might express concern in a really intense way. But unless we're talking about elder abuse or child abuse, that's not something that a physician can do anything about. And sometimes that can feel empowering for a person who's going and to talk to a medical provider is to know this person is not really in a one-up position in terms of them having power over me in this scenario. And so I can speak as clearly as possible for them to understand. But if they don't understand, that's okay. I understand. And I can move on and find a medical provider that I feel a little bit more safe with. Yeah, all good points. So what about the concept of fantasies and, and making those a reality? Is that is that a negotiation or how do those evolve with your partner? One thing I think is important to understand about fantasy is that it doesn't always have to be a reality. So oftentimes I will have clients who, for example, have some kind of non-consent fantasy. Um, rough sex, rape play, that kind of thing is one of the most common fantasies that exists. I, I think Justin Miller has it in his book, but it's uh, one of the most common fantasies in America. It's up in like 80% area of people have had some kind of fantasy along those lines. So does that mean that they need to enact this with their partner? Maybe not. Um, they may never really need to do anything other than have what we talked about earlier, quote unquote, vanilla sex, missionary style sex, penetrative sex, um, and think of that non-consensual situation in their mind and that helps them get off. They may never even tell their partner about it and that's enough enactment of the fantasy. Or maybe they talk to their partner about it, but the physical things that they're doing are not really any different. But now their partner is in on that fantasy and that's kind of hot and it allows them to be more present in it. Um, sometimes people do really feel like I would like to know what it feels like to have this fantasy be brought into a reality. And if that's the case, then there's a lot of the consent talk, like we discussed earlier, but more than just consent, discussion of what is it that you're really seeking? What really turns you on about this? What feels safe for us to enact with each other? Uh, how do we want to create the context for this to happen? And then 
giving that a try, having the communication pieces in place and afterwards checking in, how was that for you? Was bringing that fantasy into reality, was that valuable for our connection and for you to be able to get off in a stronger way or in a deeper and more profound way? And if it was, then we can build on it. And sometimes partners might say, you know, it didn't actually do that much for me to make it into a reality. It was different when it was in my brain. And one of the things I like to do for my clients is normalize that. That's okay. It doesn't mean that you're wrong about your fantasy. It just means that that fantasy is something that is more mental and emotional and doesn't actually have to be played out in the real world. Yeah, I like how fantasy doesn't have to become a reality because sometimes reality is disappointing <laughs> for sure. And not just disappointing, but some of the things that turn us on as visual cues or as mental cues are not something that we actually want to interact. So um, some of the porn that people watch, for example, is not something that they ever want to do, but that porn is what allows them to reach climax. Um, and that there's not a disparity between those two things, which people often don't understand. They think, well, if I'm watching porn about it, it must mean that I really want to have sex with a clown because I'm enjoying watching porn that has clowns in it. I really must really want to have sex with a clown. So if my partner's not willing to dress up as a clown, we must not be suited for each other. But in fact, maybe that's just the visual cue that they like in porn and it may have nothing to do with what they want to do with their partner. That's, these are, these are such good, this is good stuff. This I mean, stuff. I know our listeners are going, and I think the big thing is, and I know, especially for my students, they would always tell me, you know, I thought there was something wrong with me. I always thought there was something wrong with me and you've normalized it for me. And I just feel so uh, much lighter because of it, you know, that I'm not, there's nothing wrong with me. There's a scene, in, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, All of Me. It's with Lily Tomlin and Steve Martin. Oh, an 80s movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, <laughs> I don't even know if you were born then. But anyway, so... <laughs> It's where he, uh, 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 she enters into his yeah, body, half of his body, and he has control of the other half of his body. But anyway, so he's he's ha trying to have sex with his this his girlfriend, and and Lily Tomlin's kind of taking over in his head, and she's like, I can't do this. So they go out in the hall. It's just him, but he's having a conversation with her in his head about, Hey, we're going to do this. Just follow my lead. Da da da. And she's, there's, are you, you know what I'm talking about? I do. But like when I saw this, I was a kid, so I didn't understand half of what I was watching. <laughs> oh, okay. you know? So now that you're reliving it for me, <laughs> so I'm giggling I in my love head this because movie I'm like, oh my God, I remember this. <laughs> she's in there and she says something like, oh, spank me, you naughty poodle or something like that. And it's so, and he is just completely thrown off yeah. by that. <laughs> and anyway, it's, that's just kind of what this reminds me of. And which leads me to my next question. What draws people? Where do we... How do we, where do they get to this? Like, how do we, I know we talked earlier that it's a, it's, it can be a childhood experience or something they've seen, but you know, some people like the feeling of, of control or dominance. And some people like being dominated. Some people like pain. It, it feels good to them. Pain feels good to them. You know, I, I, we all, I think we've all had a deep tissue massage, right? Where that. I mean, they're getting in there and you're just thinking, I don't know how much more of this I can take, but yet you don't want them to stop because on some level, it feels good. It hurts so good kind of thing. Is that kind of where, I mean, I mean, I don't, you know, pretty naive here on now that, but that's kind of how I relate that to, I even told my massage therapist, I said, you should charge more for that. <laughs> she goes, yeah, I should. So. So you brought up the the shame piece and the 
importance of normalization and feeling like you're okay, whatever it is that you desire. And I think that's a big piece of this, right? Is that shame can really become cyclical for people that, um, they have a fantasy or they watch porn that involves a kink that they're interested in and they get really turned on by it. And then as soon as they orgasm, they're taken over by shame. They're overpowered by shame. And then they, you know, delete their, their porn profile and they, they promise they're never going to like watch those things again. They feel so guilty about it. And then that shame in and of itself can actually be part of the dynamic that is fueling the desire and that can build back up and it can become cyclical. So a little bit of shame can actually be something that's an erotic turn on, right? But you get very much of it and it's it's a huge negative and it makes people feel terrible about themselves and not be able to share who they are with their partner and it can in infuse other areas of their life, right? They can start to have depression or anger issues or anxiety because of this cycle that's happening in their sex life and in their own minds. Um, and. So I think that's a little bit about what you're talking about in terms of how shame plays a part in all this and normalization plays a part in all this. And that's often one of the things that I'm doing for clients who come to me for the first time and they want to talk about a specific desire that they have um, and simply me saying, yeah, great. How far do you want to go with that? Where do you want to go with this? And not looking at them like they're crazy is enough for them to sometimes feel like, thank you so much. All right. I don't need to see you ever again. You've looked at me like <laughs> I am not a horrible human being. Now I can go tell my partner about this and we can move on and it feels okay. And isn't that wonderful? That must be a wonderful feeling just to know that someone said, yeah, great. Do that. You know, as long as it's with it's safe and it's with consent, you do that, right? There's nothing, uh, which leads me to those two words, right? Normal and abnormal. We really try to stay clear of that because I, I, they're interesting words to me anyway with respect to what their delineation and what they want to present. Um, and so I'm assuming you hear that a lot. Like, is this normal? You know, am I normal? Absolutely. And it's one of the things about the internet is that almost anything that you are into on a sexual level or in life in general, it could be Pokemon cards or whatever it is, there's going to be other people like you that are obsessed with whatever it is you're obsessed with. And that is a great benefit, not just that you can go find that kink in terms of porn, but you can find other people who normalize it for you and who say, oh, yes, tentacle porn is something that really turns me on. Why do you think it turns you on? It turns me on because I think this and it's just to have other humans who make you feel less alone. As a side, as a side, kind of an rabbit hole, and I and I don't want to go too deep into it, but I know we talked about we were talking about porn and people viewing porn. Mm -hmm. Is there this concept of ethically made porn? I typically think porn is made with consent and all of those things, but it's not a perfect world. It's just like with any type of corporate structure and employees and work environments that it can be not. Okay. So are there certain channels or people that say, yeah, we're not, that's not okay. We don't go there. We go here. I mean, everything always comes out sometimes in a judgment or a hierarchy 
in that sense. Mm-hmm. Do you do you follow sure. what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, well, one of the big pieces about porn being ethical now is that a lot of the pornography that people are getting is Pornhub type pornography where it's amateurs, right? And so we don't really know how consensual is consent. Just because somebody is not saying in a video, I don't want to be doing this does not mean that it's really consensual. We don't really know the age of the participants. Um, we don't really know what it is that got them to make this video. We don't even know if they know they're being videotaped sometimes. Um, And so it's very blurred. And oftentimes those people aren't being paid for it. So it's not porn in the sense that porn was even in like the early mid nineties where people were making a reasonable amount of money on porn. And arguably there was still unethical porn out there, but it was more likely to be ethical. Whereas now a lot of the porn content that's out there, it's not people who are working in the industry. It's content that's out there from all over the world that is some what ambiguous. And so, yes, if this is something that's important to you, there is a, a growing movement on ethical porn. There's some great female directors. I'm terrible with names, so I don't have a lot of names on the tip of my tongue right now. But um, if you go out there and Google, like, where can I get ethical porn? There's so many good articles out there and links to places where you can um, get female directed porn and porn that's directed by people who are compensating clearly, keeping their actors safe, people who are in the sex industry because they really want to do it and they're passionate about it and they they love experiencing a sex positive artistic experience versus someone with a camera um, on a Tinder date that's filming something that you're watching on Pornhub. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yep. There's a lot of difference between those two things. Yes. <laughs> a lot. So finally, I do want to talk about the word shame because we've mentioned it a lot. And I think anything dealing with anything sexual, in uh, particularly in the United States, There's always shame from a very young age all the way to death. We shame people for their desires and their play. How do we get rid of that? Particularly in the U.S., I would say that we think of ourselves as a very sexual country, and we are in some ways, but we really have very puritanical roots, and there is um, a a bedrock of religious mores in this country that inform how we feel about sex. And so uh, for women in particular, I would say even leaving kink and BDSM and all that aside, women are, are taught in many corners of this country and other countries that they shouldn't have sexual desires of their own, that to masturbate or to want sex on their own, there's something wrong with them. There's something bad about them. Um, I'm actually wearing my shame kills love shirt right now that I got from uh, (laughs) a conference that Tina Sellers spoke at. And Tina Sellers has a book about um, erasing shame that has come specifically from uh, conservative religious roots. Uh, But that's not the only place that shame comes from, but it is part of it. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, I think normalization can be a big piece of erasing that and finding community can be a base of erasing that, finding a partner or partners that is already sex positive and secure in their sexuality can help a person who is less so. Um, And so really just being comfortable talking about sex, normalizing sex for other people, letting them know that everything that they want is within the realm of, of normal, like you said earlier. Yeah. Even though we don't use the words normal yeah, and abnormal. Normal, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's use the word typical. Let's use the word typical. Yes. I learned a lot and I know that there is a lot more for me to learn as yes, well. For but sure. Is there anything that I missed? I know I missed a lot, but anything that you would really like to get out there well, I could talk about this stuff all day. I'm passionate <laughs> Me about too. it. I'm excited yeah. about it. Um, if there's 
one thing I could leave people with is it's just, do you talk to your friends about sex? Do you talk to your partner or partners about sex? How openly do you talk about it? Do you even talk to yourself in your own mind about your sexual desires or does it kind of stay unspoken and in this shame corner of your life? And so the more you can bring your sex out of the shadows and your sexuality into your body and into the rest of your world, then the easier it is to have it feel integrated, to have yourself feel whole and to have your uh, sexual connections and your emotional bonds with other people feel really rich and cohesive. And that's perfect. It's a perfect uh, way to wrap this up for sure. I think when the whole time you were talking about all of this, the one thing that kept going through my head was communication. And all I could think of was um, people who are engaging in the, in these relationships I think really communicate. I probably have a very strong basis of communication, which everybody knows is a a really great foundation for a good relationship. And all I could think of is, that's a lot of talking and that's cool. I was just really... Yeah, the clients that I work with who are all really well-versed in communication around tricky topics because they're talking about sex openly, whether they're kinky folks or non-monogamous folks or both, uh, they had a much easier time with the COVID conversations than other people had because they were able to have very (laughs) similar conversations and to say like, no, it's a boundary for me if I'm not wearing a mask when we're hanging out, we need to hang out outside. Or they were comfortable asking the question, what is your risk level? Where, Where are you at during the course of your day? How many people have you been exposed to. Whereas I think a lot of people who aren't used to communicating about those tricky topics that have to do with bodily autonomy, um, they had trouble talking to their friends and family members about that kind of thing. And it it could cause rifts in in the social fabric where it didn't as much for my clients. I think that's yeah. a really good point. <laughs> yeah, and then that would, for me, translates into sexually transmitted uh, infections and those conversations that... Well, just any hard conversation. As yeah, we yeah. About. Yeah, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's been great. Awesome. We appreciate your time. It's good to see you. Thanks, Bessie and Mandy. Thank you. Sure. I mean, that was very informative is what that was. A lot of of good info. Oh, can you imagine? We just got... That's surface level. Yeah. Yeah. The first layer of vanilla frosting, right? Like that's <laughs> that's kind of what we got. Sure, it was but vanilla. <laughs> it was, we were layering some sprinkles on there, man. So you know, it's always a good basis. It's she good even base. said it was a good basis. It's okay? a good base. Hold yeah, on. I, I like the analogy, yeah. but I I think that was important that she you know clarified that whatever turns you on. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think me and you have had that conversation lots of times, and definitely, um, I think we both teach that in our you know in in our lives and in our classrooms yeah you know consent is what matters yep consent is what matters the activity is is whatever you want it to be as long as everybody's happy with that together but i i do i mean i i i like the idea of like normalizing this you know hopefully some listeners of of our podcast will maybe recognize themselves and feel more normal or you know I know. And, you know, she talked about that we have a bedrock of Puritan uh, basis, which we've always talked about with our classes, right? The Victorian era and all of that stuff. But, you know, if you also get into like the Shakespeare and that, you know, the theater, they were they were getting their groove on. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Anyway, another enjoyable conversation. I hope our listeners learned a lot. 
And so again, that was Indigo Stray Conger and she practices in Denver. So if you have any questions that you would like to learn more from Indigo, you can find her at Mile High Psychotherapy and the website is milehighpsychotherapy.com. And you can reach out to her uh, or you can also reach out to us and we can connect with her. But she is a wealth of information and sure. is so open and inviting and easy to be around. So I hope that if you need, you should reach out. This podcast was created to promote Look Both Ways in the textbook written by Dr. Cairo. Look Both Ways is a nonprofit organization based in Loveland, Colorado, with a mission to educate our youth about their reproductive health to make informed decisions for their future. We do this by educating the educators through professional development, and we also put on free conferences for both teens and parents of teens. Textbooks used at schools are donated by Look Both Ways to eliminate the money obstacle for schools interested in piloting or adopting our curriculum and textbook. As a nonprofit, we're always fundraising and accepting donations. For more information about Look Both Ways, our fundraising efforts, getting a textbook donated to you, or to make a donation, please visit lookbothways.us. That's L-O-O-K-B-O-T-H-W-A-Y-S dot U-S. This podcast was produced by Peach Islander Productions in Fort Collins, Colorado. This is Mandy Johnson and Dr. B wishing you well. Be sure and catch all our episodes of It's Not Human Sexuality on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.